Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Hebrews. If you're using the church Bible on page 1003, Hebrews chapter 5, and as you find that, let's prepare our hearts to hear the Word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of Christ be our rule of faith and life. May Your Holy Spirit be our teacher, illuminating our minds and giving us the faith to believe what we hear and read. And may Your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, we break into our reading of Hebrews chapter 5 at verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. As He says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered, and being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, over the last week, uh, in one of our parish meetings, I was asked a question. It was a, a very good question asked by one of our dear friends in the church here, and it helped to clarify what I would say in the opening remarks of this sermon this morning, so I'm grateful to her. She was asking a question about why it is that the Trinity has factored so much in our sermons over the last few months. Good question, because you'd have to really be from outer space and be here for the very first time in order not to know that. Why is the Trinity so important in the writer to the Hebrews? Because we've been expounding the book and therefore have been discovering that the writer to the Hebrews has been emphasizing not only the doctrine of the Trinity, but especially our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it important? Well, I want to say it's important for two reasons. First of all, of course, it is the highest of all of the truth to which we hold as Christians. You don't get anything above it. Everything else hangs on it. Martin Luther said that it is the primary truth on which every other doctrine, every other truth hangs. Nothing else makes sense if we don't get the Trinity right. But that's not the only reason. The other reason, and it's even more important for you and me in terms of our everyday life, it's this, that our salvation depends on the Trinity, because the Trinity is the Christian way of describing God. And the gospel is the gospel of God. And the gospel, as it unfolds in the New Testament, is a Trinitarian gospel. You cannot avoid it. You just need to think about, for example, some of the key doctrines that we affirm regularly. The doctrine of election, the Father chooses. The doctrine of redemption, 
the Son redeems. The doctrine of sanctification, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. There you have the Trinity in action. When we say, for example, we're thinking about eternal life, how does Jesus define eternal life? In John 17, He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's a sense in which that is the very heart and essence. That is what makes you Christian, as opposed to, a, to Jewish or Islamic or uh, a pagan who worships many gods. It is what you think of Christ in relation to God. So that in that great verse that we used to learn as children, and we had a little song about it, Romans 10 and 9 is a favorite verse of mine, confessing Christ as Lord, I am saved by grace divine. It says there, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be what? You will be saved. Salvation depends on it. Because when we use those words, Jesus is Lord, we are talking about the humanity of Christ, Jesus, and we are talking about Jesus as the Lord, as God. And those two things go together. Jesus is Lord. Everything that I can think of that the Bible says about the Lord in the Old Testament applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why the writer is spelling out for us how significant this matter is. And you can see it in the passage that we have read this morning in verse 9. He, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Eternal salvation depends upon this individual, this Lord Jesus Christ. And what we've noticed, or what we're noticing in this middle section of Hebrews is that as he begins to tease out in what way Jesus provided that salvation, he begins to talk about Him as a mediator, one who stands between opposing parties. In this case, God and man. And he uses the language of the priesthood. And he's been arguing here that Jesus is our great high priest. He is the man who stands between the rest of us humans and God. And he's emphasized the humanity of Christ, that the eternal Son took on real humanity. And that's what we're going to see, so that He could operate and function as a priest. Look at verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called of God, just as Aaron was. And so also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son today, I have begotten you. What He's saying is this, that as a man standing alongside us in our humanity, and as a priest acting for us humans, Jesus had to be appointed and anointed by God for the task to which God was sending Him for our salvation. 
And you can think about anointing and appointing in terms of a king. A king in the ancient world was anointed and appointed to his task of rule, and Jesus comes to reign over his church. And you can think of this in terms of the king, of the prince, sorry, the priest. He he comes to, to be the one to reconcile us to God. He doesn't do this of his own. Because he has taken on our humanity, he can't exalt himself. He has to be exalted by God. That's what he's emphasizing. He's emphasizing how human was the Messiah, the Christ. He did not exalt himself. As the Son of God, he was highly exalted. Remember what it says in John chapter 12, when Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 6, and he says these words, Isaiah said this when he saw my glory. And if you go back to Isaiah 6 to read the words Jesus is referring to, it begins, you remember Isaiah 6 begins like this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and His, His robe filled the temple, and the seraphim were crying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. Jesus says, Isaiah wrote these things when he saw my glory. The glory of God is the glory of Jesus. And you hear Jesus speaking about this in John 17 when he talks to the Father about the glory I had with you before the world began. So all of that, you see, he leaves all of that and he takes on our humanity and as a man and as a priest, he is sent by God. Now, the author is going to tell us other things about Jesus as a priest, and I'll just mention them in passing. One is that His designation to the office of priest happened in eternity. There's a quotation there in verse 6 from Psalm 110, in which the Lord is talking to the Lord, and uh, we don't know who they are, which is the Lord that's talking to the Lord. But the Lord who's talking to the Lord says to the second Lord, I've made you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What the author does here is he quotes from Psalm 2 first in order to help us unpick which Lord is the Lord who appoints the priest. Well, it's the same Lord who has eternally begotten the Son. It's the Father who appoints Christ to be the priest. The one who eternally begot the Father, you are my Son today, that is in the eternal now of eternity, I have begotten you. He is the only begotten Son of God. This is the one the Father appoints to be the man who will act on our behalf and who will reconcile us to God. So, Psalm 2, quoted in verse 5, tells us who is the speaker in Psalm 110, which he then quotes in verse 6. It is the Father who begat the Son who, who prophesies or proclaims or designates the Son as a priest forever. Now, this is what influence the thinking of Jesus Christ on earth in His humanity. You know, one of the things you learn very early on in the life of Jesus is that He's age 12. 
he and his family go from Nazareth, uh, quite a long journey, down from Galilee to the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus is obviously playing with all the other boys and girls as they make their way down there. They get there. His parents are quite at ease, thinking that He's with them. And so, when they've finished in Jerusalem and they're making their way back again, they don't think to look for Him. They think He's playing with all the other boys and girls until uh, there's a point down the road somewhere where they discover that He's not there with all the boys and girls. And they say, well, we haven't seen, we haven't seen Jesus since we left Jerusalem. So, back they go looking for Him. And you remember, they hunt everywhere for Him, and eventually they go into the temple, and there He is in the temple, surrounded by the theologians, and He is discussing with them great theological subjects. And they're furious. And they say, Jesus, I can just hear Joseph saying to Jesus, Jesus, your mother has been scared out of her wits. She's been coming up with all kinds of scenarios as to what might have happened to you. Do do not consider what you're doing about your mother's feelings. And Jesus calmly replies, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Now, what informed his thinking? But it was Psalm 2. It was these psalms, as he read them, as they were sung in worship in the synagogue, and as he prays, And as in in his spirit he engages with God that the reality of who he is grows in his mind and heart. In other words, in his humanity, in his human nature as a boy and then as a man, he has a rich experience spiritually of God the Father. Well, as we as we look at what Christ came into the world to do, do you notice in verse 7, it begins to focus then on His earthly life. In the days of His flesh, it says. And that little expression, the days of His flesh, refers to as the entire course of we would, what we would call His earthly life from the womb to the tomb, the entire course of His life. And throughout the entire course of His life, Jesus was confronted with human weakness. He was, after all, human. And humans get the cold. Humans skin their knees. Humans fall down and hurt themselves. Humans are limited in their knowledge and have to grow in their knowledge and understanding. Humans are confronted with all kinds of realities of our human frailty all the time. Jesus knew all that. In the days of His flesh, He experienced all of these things we experience. He experienced the infirmities and the limitations of being in the flesh. He had to cope with human weakness. He even had to cope with the effects of sin, even though He was sinless. He had to cope with the effects of sin in the world. And so, when His friend Lazarus died, you find Him snorting with rage like an angry horse, snorting before going into battle, at the effects of sin. At the same time, we find Him crying tears of grief alongside those who were bereaved. It tells you in the text that Jesus cried loud cries and tears. 
Have you, ever, have you ever struggled with something? Have you ever wrestled with some issue in your life? Have you, ever, have you ever cried out to God with loud cries? Why did you let this happen? Why has this entered my life like this? Have you ever shed tears? Tears are part and parcel of what it means for you and I to be human beings. We nearly lost our little dog, Chloe, two weeks ago. And when I was sitting in that vet's office, and she was telling me all that was wrong with our little dog, the tears were dripping down my nose, involuntary. I was glad nobody was with me. Because tears are part of our humanity. They express our emotions. They express our feelings. She's having an operation this Wednesday, by the way, just so as you know, and hopefully it will, it will work out. But these tears are real because we creatures, we human beings express ourselves in this way. And do you see what it says in the text that our Lord Jesus, with loud cries and tears, in other words, there is no pang that rends the heart in which the man of sorrows doesn't have a part. But also in this, we're told that in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Now, that word to offer there is a very interesting word in the context because the word offering here is normally the activity of a priest, and the word that's used here is the word that's used throughout the Bible for the activity of a priest. He offers up sacrifices. He offers up things to God. Among the things He offers up to God are His prayers. So, you should read it like this. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up as a priest prayers and supplications to God. You think of all of His prayer life. In the days of His flesh, He would cry out to His Father in heaven. You think of your life when we're, when we're in trouble as believers, what do we do? We, we cry out to God, oh God. Sometimes we don't even know what to say to God. And the Holy Spirit has to take the, the anxious longings of our heart and the yearnings of our heart and the pangs and the pains and the sighs of our nature and translate those into perfect prayers on our behalf as He prays with us, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. But we know what it's like to do this. We identify with Jesus. While we are in the days of our flesh, we, like Him in the days of His flesh, find ourselves often with loud cries and tears. It's in the days of our flesh that we offer our prayers. It's in the days of our flesh that we do our works of service. It's in the days of our flesh that we shed our tears. And when we get to heaven… When we get to be with Christ, which is better by far, what happens? He wipes away our tears. From service we find rest, and we see face to face. That's the glory of living the Christian life. But while He was in the days of His flesh, He offered His prayers and supplications to God. He did this all of His life. He did it after His baptism. He did it before He told His disciples that whatever they bind on earth would be bound in heaven. He did it before He fed the 5,000. He did it before He offered them the cup at communion. He prayed. 
But in particularly, in particular, he offered up these prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears as the moment of the cross came near to him, as the moment when he would offer up his own body for you and me, as he offered up himself in sacrifice for the sins of his people, as that came near, he did not offer up himself as an automaton might, but only as a human could, wrestling with the weight of it, recoiling from the stench of sin involved in it, thinking of those who would benefit from what he was about to do. He offered himself as the substitute and representative of his people, taking our debt, the debt of our sin, putting himself in harm's way, knowing that he would bear the curse and die the death of the curse for his own. And yet Jesus in his flesh dared not go through all of this without turning his attention to the Father and crying out to heaven for the Father to help him and to be with him. The psalmist picks up these things when it records him crying from the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Psalm 68, I've roared by reason of the disquiet of my heart. You see it in the gospel records. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as great drops of blood falling onto the earth, Luke tells us. He was in the grip, says Luke, of the agony that strong conflict of mind, that, that, that dreadful sense of disintegration as his mind is torn, as it were, by this weight that lay before him so that, as Matthew tells us, he prayed with more vehement intention of mind and spirit and body. And Psalm 22 that records his own words on the cross bears his own testimony, I am poured out like water, he says. And what, what we're picture here is of Christ facing the cross, and at this point before the cross, we find him completely disturbed to the very roots of his being by what lies before him. And there's a wonder in that, friends because there is many a Christian martyr has gone to, the, to their death singing hymns of joy. I think of the two Margarets who were put to death, done to death for their Christian faith on the Solway Firth down in the southwest of Scotland. The tides come in very quickly there, and they come very high. And these two women, one older and one younger, one scarcely out of her teens, tied to bits of would in the, in the sea to be drowned for their faith in Christ. And they sang psalms and encouraged each other with Scripture until their voices were drowned out by the rising sea. Jesus' people die well. Jesus died hard. He died hard. His whole being recoiled from what lay ahead 
Oh, he was all confidence when he prayed for his people. Read John 17. There in John 17, he's praying for the whole church, and all his confidence and calmness, and he's even telling the Father what he wills will happen. I will that those that you've given me be with me where I am. There's no confidence, all confidence about what God's purpose and plans is. But when he is facing God as the judge on our behalf, when he is anticipating what it would be like for he, him, a pure and holy person, to be made sin for us, when he's contemplating what does it mean to be cursed by the law, being hung on a tree and therefore coming under the curse of God, when he considers that he is the sponsor and the guarantor of a new covenant for his people, the Scripture says he began to be afraid and distraught. His soul was heavy and exceedingly sorrowful as he approached death. He was in an agony. So dreadful was what lay ahead of him. And he wasn't questioning for one moment that the Father loved him. The Father's love for him never altered, never altered. The Father never left him. Read the rest of Psalm 22, and you'll know the Father never left him. There was no disjunction within the Godhead. That's an impossibility. In fact, the Father never loved his Son more than when his Son stood in for us. But here he is acting as a man, do you see? A man had brought the race down to this mess. A man must raise the race up to heaven. And so he cries out, and do you notice the words that come next? He was heard. It was heard in that which he feared. It was heard for his reverence. The Father always heard the Son. In what way was he heard? He was heard in a relative sense. When he says, not my will but yours be done, he prayed in his human nature and with respect of his human will. Christ could not have been truly human and not had an aversion to what was coming nor would he have truly suffered if the suffering had not been appalling to him. But it was through his prayers that you read the stories in the Gospels, through those prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he arrived at the other side in a state of composure of mind and heart, absolute calm and equanimity, standing before Pilate then, do you remember, after his arrest, after they'd done so many terrible things to him as they, as they made fun of him and as they mocked him and scourged him and so on, and standing there erect now, facing what lay ahead with confidence. He was heard in that relative sense, just as you and I are when we're struggling with something. We pray through, as it were, through the pain points. We pray them right down to the wire. We can be in agony and sweating it out and wondering our bones out of joint because of the things we're praying about, feeling that, we, that everything in our world is collapsing, falling apart. We pray through it. And when we emerge out the other side, God is very often giving to us the gift of peace that passes all understanding. But he was also heard in the absolute sense. It was part of his humiliation and his obedience to pray that he might be strengthened in the trial 
and that he might prevail in the battle, and that he might merge triumphant from the power of death. He was a man, the man Christ Jesus. He had been made a little lower than the angels. He'd taken on our flesh and blood. He'd humbled himself to take on the form of a servant. He was found in fashion as a man. He was going to be obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And then God was going to highly exalt him. And maybe you're struggling with things in your life. I want you to take encouragement that your Savior struggled with things in his life. Just as he was heard relatively and received the power to endure, so God will answer your prayer for that. And just as he was heard absolutely and ultimately and delivered, you will one day be delivered too. You will be one day delivered too. Well, we come to verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Well, you see, as a son, there was no need for him to learn anything. He knew what obedience meant. He'd given the Ten Commandments, for goodness sake. He'd instructed Adam in the, in the Eden what he should do. He gave us the law and the prophets. He understood what obedience meant because he demanded obedience. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. As the Son of God, he was not in need of learning anything because God has comprehensive knowledge of everything, because God, in His intelligence, in His mind, has conceived of everything, every possibility, potential and actual. Everything is known to Him. There is nothing that He doesn't know. He was almighty, suffering. As the Son of God, He didn't need to suffer. He couldn't suffer as the Son of God. He's Almighty God, for goodness sake. St. Augustine put it like this. Augustine is how you pronounce it in English. He put it like this. Do not imagine an Almighty Father and a not Almighty Son. Or again, Augustine says, Almighty is the Father, Almighty is the Son. If Almighty, if almighty beget not Almighty then there is no Son. Because for the Almighty God to beget a Son is to beget an Almighty God. If the Father has life in Himself, Jesus said, the Son has life in Himself. Humans beget humans, God begets God. So from all eternity, the Son shares the very nature of God. There was, there was no… God does not need to learn anything. There is no movement in God. There's no development in God. There's no growth in God. There's no maturing in God because God is God. But in His human nature, you see, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Here He is, God manifested in the flesh now, God's own Son in the flesh. And He learned obedience throughout His entire earthly life, you see. He came 
to be a man, first of all, and as man, he was made under the law. Paul says to the Galatians, he was born of a woman made under the law. You and I are under the law, bound to obey the law of God. Jesus knew that. But whereas you and I know it but don't do it, He did it in every aspect of His life. He did it on our behalf, of course, to fulfill all righteousness. His obedience to God led Him to live a life in the beauty of holiness. But throughout that life, He was exposed to all the hardships of earthly life in a way that exceeds our, exp- our experience, even to the temptations of the evil one and opposition from His enemies. He, did, he experienced this all His life, all His life. As a man, He suffered. And as God, He was able to endure the utmost that was inflicted upon Him says William Googe, great Puritan. And if God's own Son in flesh, in life under the sun, in the days of His flesh, was not exempted from suffering, neither will you or I be. And it's in the trials of life, it's in the disappointments of life, it's in the things, the curveballs that life throws at us, that we learn the cost of obedience. We learn the cost of obedience. Doing what is required, enduring what is afflicted. We learn in the ups and downs of our earthly experience, the hardships that come our way, we learn what obedience costs. And Jesus in His human flesh learned all the lessons that He was to learn. And He, in His human flesh, was made perfect. Look at verse 9. Made perfect. He did it all. Remember, He's doing it for you and for me. That's what we need. We need someone to do everything that is required of us on our behalf perfectly. And He was made perfect. He was made perfect, and therefore and thereby, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. That brings us to today. You want eternal salvation? Well, eternal salvation comes in Him and with Him. He is the source of eternal salvation because He is both God and man because He's the God-man, because He's the mediator, because He's our great high priest, because He bore our sins and our sorrows and made them His very own and took the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone, because He is our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. He is the source of eternal salvation, eternal forever. Salvation, rescue, the ultimate rescue from sin and death and hell for all who obey Him. How may I obey Jesus today? Well, here's one thing you can do. With the grace and help of the Holy Spirit, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and you will be saved. That's the obedience of faith. That's one of the ways the book of Hebrews looks at faith. When we believe in Jesus Christ, that's the obedience of faith. We're enabled by the Holy Spirit to do what the Word of God says we should do. Trust Him. Rest upon Him. Receive Him. Believe God concerning Him. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God has raised Him from the dead. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to think great and wonderful thoughts about our Savior who has come down to our level, come to where we are, taken on our humanity and all the weakness and weariness of our humanity, done it all and done it all for us, done it so that He might reconcile us to You, our Father in heaven. Grant us the Holy Spirit that He would create faith in our hearts that we might believe and be saved. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.